uh, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 20 verses. Colossians chapter 1, the first 20 verses. Maybe actually we'll go to, uh, to verse 23. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a lot going on in this passage and uh, if we were to uh, do it full justice, we could pause and, uh, and look at just this first portion of chapter one uh, with great um, benefit. 
for really weeks and weeks and maybe months and months and even years and years. There's such a, a depth here, such a richness here. Um, all of the, uh, um, the, the splendid doctrine of Christ that is disclosed here. Uh, but we are just going to look um, this morning, this afternoon, at a couple of verses, the first two verses of this passage. If you pay attention to the news of the world, then you are aware of the state of things as they currently stand. As Charles Dickens, the, uh, the English novelist of the, uh, the century ago, said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. We enjoy, for instance, unprecedented health and wealth and prosperity here in North America. We are uh, richly blessed in, in the material realm by all that's going on. Our, our bodies are healthy, generally speaking. We've got a good healthcare system and, and a good social network system. And, and so it's the best of times in many ways, the best of times. But it's also in many ways the worst of times. When we look around the world and we see everything that's going on in the world and how it seems to be unraveling, there's a lot to be concerned about. Wars um, abroad, wars in Ukraine, wars in Armenia, wars in Gaza, and war elsewhere. There's a lot of conflict going on. So it's the best of times. There's a lot of prosperity, a lot of health, and, and, and all of that, which is good. But it's also, there's great distress as well. And uh, we don't have to even look out into the world to know that there is great distress. All we need to do is look into our own hearts. He's going to look into our own hearts and see that there is great distress even within ourselves. In fact, there is a, a spiritual war that is going on, and, and um, 1 Corinthians makes that so clear. There's a, a war between the, the flesh and the spirit, between the old man, who we once were, and the new man, who is now uh, within us because of God's grace as the Holy Spirit has carved out a place in our hearts and, and planted the seed of life within us and caused us to be born again to a living hope. What are we to do under these conditions? The best of times, the worst of times, conflict and peace and all of that going on and, and that conflict and that peace is also within us. How are we to live in this fallen world? Because that's where the conflict arises. We're living in a, in a fallen world which is benighted and blighted with sin. Well, relief is at hand. We do not despair. Relief is at hand. God has sent his son, the eternal one, to be our savior. Jesus Christ took upon himself our very nature. He became like one of us in every way. He was man of flesh and bone, and he uh, was under the, uh, um, the law, as Galatians tells us. And yet, there is something extraordinary, absolutely unique about Jesus. One thing that sets him apart from all the rest of mankind. He was without sin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit overshadowed uh, Mary, his mother. And so he is a man without sin. He is the perfect one, is not able to sin. He can be tempted in every way that we are, but he will never, he never fell into sin. And we know that because God, the Father, declared at least three times, this is my beloved Son, indicating Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, as Roman declares, and he is the great king. He is the captain of our salvation. And as long as we look to him and are attached to him, we cannot fail 
in our walk it means we can we can you know like mess up but because we are united to Christ we know that we will prevail not because of anything within ourselves but because God has purposed to save us to redeem us to cleanse us well relief is at hand God has sent a savior to redeem us from the dark domain that's overshadowed his creation by the world the flesh and the devil the wounds of Christ his shed blood has healed us from all iniquity. His blood has cleansed us. His righteousness has clothed us. And now we are hidden in Christ. We are united to him savingly. In fact, Jesus is often described in, in scripture as the keep. And he is also the keeper. Do you know where that uh, um, the, the origins of that word keep come from? If you uh, have ever traveled to, uh, to Europe, um, then you know that one of the things that characterizes uh, European um, material culture are castles. Well, often the castle had one tower that was absolutely impregnable because of the, um, the walls that were so thick. And sometimes that, that um, tower was called the keep. And as long as you were in the keep, then no one could get at you because it was impregnable. And scripture is telling us that Jesus Christ is that keep and that he is the keeper. And as long as we are in Christ, the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot ultimately overwhelm us, but that Christ will prevail. Christ will prevail. And since Christ is the Savior and is saving a people for himself, and since they are brought from death to life by the grace of God, since all of that is true, we should have great hope. Not only great hope, but great joy. I say that I'm, I'm a very serious person in my temperament. I am naturally melancholic, um, but inside I feel great joy. And right now, inside I am small, uh, smiling and full of great joy. But I am, um, if I say that we should have great joy and I have a serious face, it's only because of my temperament, not because uh, I'm, I'm contradicting myself. We should have great joy. We should also be full of great hope as we look out into the world and we, we, we see the world unfold and we think, wow, there's a lot of conflict going on, but Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king and he will prevail. So we should have great hope. Well, there are three major points to today's sermon. The first major point is Christ and the church. The second major point is Christ and the saints. And the third major point is Christ and the peace of God. We begin with major point number one, Christ and the church. Christ and the church. What does God want to teach us about Christ and his church? Well, let's consider the relationship that Christ established with his church, <clears throat> specifically the organization of the church. What we would say, the, the hierarchy of the church. Hierarchy is not a bad word. It can be a very good word. And in the, uh, the biblical worldview, hierarchy is absolutely good. God is king. He has sent his son, and, and um, the son has established the church. Christ is the king of his church. Why does the Bible say, or sorry, what does the Bible say about the church, specifically the, uh, the structure of the church, and how can that give us great hope? Why is there great hope in the structure of the church? Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. It was God's will that Jesus Christ would gather a people for himself and that Christ would be the head of his church, of his people. 
Well, in this brief verse, Paul alludes to a hierarchy, a hierarchy. God the Father wills it, Christ is sent to accomplish it, and Paul obeys God's word, and Paul obeys Jesus Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is the pattern that is established and revealed throughout Scripture. God loves order. God loves to organize. In fact, God has created man to be an organization. Just look at how we are built or how we are created. We have a head, and it is our head that governs our body. It would be crazy if our body governed our heads and we just sort of did whatever we pleased according to the appetites of our body. No, no, no. There's all kinds of trouble that we run into when we do that, when we follow our appetites, our passions. God has renewed our wills and enlightened our minds so that our heads can govern our bodies. There's a hierarchy there. And there's a hierarchy in the church as well. There's a hierarchy in the church as well. Christ is the head of the church. And I would ask you a very simple question. If you are part of the church, is Christ the head of your life? Do you listen to Christ? Do you obey Christ? When Christ's word is declared, do you say, I need to listen to that and to apply it into my own life because he's my king and I want to follow him. There is a hierarchy. For instance, the, um, and, and this pattern is throughout scripture. For instance, the supremacy of God the Father is described in all the gospels. God shows himself in all the gospels that he is supreme over all things. For instance, in Matthew chapter six, verse 11, Jesus prays to God the Father. And it is God the Father who provides all things, including our daily bread. If you enjoy your daily bread today, it is because God has ultimately given it to you. It is his will to provide. In fact, he is the great provider. In Mark chapter nine, verse seven, God the Father openly declares that Jesus Christ is his beloved son, begotten, not created, and that Jesus the son supersedes both Moses and Elijah because he is the embodiment of the law and he is the great prophet. So of course he supersedes Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were great men, but they're certainly not greater than Jesus, the king of all heaven. In chapter 11, verse four, God the Father forgives sins. Yes, it's God the Father who forgives sins. Oftentimes we think it's Jesus, but Jesus is simply doing the will of the Father. It is the Father's will that your sins would be forgiven in and through Jesus Christ. But God is intimately um, interested in your cleansing. And he has sent Jesus Christ to do that work of cleansing. Now let's turn to the headship of Christ. The headship of Christ is everywhere in scripture. Um, Christ is, is head over creation, but he's also head of the church. And this is taught eloquently in Romans chapter six through eight, and in the opening chapters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Hebrews. Christ is king of the church. He is your king, he is my king, and wherever we go in all the world, when we go into a church, we know that Christ is king there too. 
We share that king with Christians all over the world. That's one of the wonderful um, characteristics of Christians. We can say to any Christian anywhere in the world, are you a follower of Christ? And they say yes. And we automatically have uh, affinity with them. We can automatically associate with them. Why? Because they are servants of the great king just as we are. And finally, the doctrine of the officers of the church, those who govern the church in um, earthly terms, um, is taught in Acts chapter 15, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Titus chapter 1. All of those chapters speak about the officers of the church. You know, God is so good. He is so gracious. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frames. He knows that we need leaders, strong leaders, godly men who can lead the church and lead individuals. And God not only knows that, but then he provides officers of the church to do the actual leading, the pastors, the teachers, and in former days, the apostles, and the prophets. These men, chosen by God and equipped by him, have led the church throughout the ages. This shows, this demonstrates God's goodness. And all of these church officers are under the headship of Jesus Christ. So here's a clear demonstration of how God loves his people. He gives us a church. He gives us officers who can uh, govern and rule and teach us. And all of that is set under the rule of Christ. And of course, we want that ruler. We want a good king. We want somebody who is good and gracious and wise, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great, gracious ruler. This is what Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, declares. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, did you hear why God gives us the officers of the church? It's not so that they can be dictators who push you around and dictate what you should do. The officers of the church, rather, are given to the church to teach and to guide you so that you are built up in your faith and in your doctrine so that we all know God, we all love God, and we want to serve God. This is the gracious God that we have. So that's the first important point um, of the church is that God is the one who gives us officers and he gives us officers and, and um, the head of the church for our good. And then turning to major point number two, the major point number two is Christ and the saints, Christ and the saints. Let's consider Christ's relationship to his people, the saints. Specifically, where are the saints situated? Do you know that if you are in Christ, that you are a saint? If you are in Christ, you are a saint. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. He was the one that drew you to Christ. He was the one who enlightened your mind. He was the one that renewed your will, the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in you. You are the temple. And that makes you a saint. And uh, you may not feel like a saint. As you review your, your, your past week, you might think, I don't, I'm not acting like a saint. If we say we are without sin, we fool ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wrong. If we don't feel like saints, if we haven't acted like saints, the solution is simple, brothers and sisters. We drop to our knees, 
We beg for God's forgiveness, and then we receive his grace, knowing that he is good and gracious. He will never forsake us. We might, we might forsake him. In fact, oftentimes we've, we forsake him in thought and word and deed. Christ Jesus never forsakes his people. He always loves them. He's always gracious and always merciful. If, we were, if I were to ask you right now, Christian, where are you? Christian, where are you? What would your response be? You might say, well, Robert, I'm, I'm right here. Uh, I'm right in this church. But if I persisted and said, no, Christian, where are you? I'd say, well, you know, I'm in, what, this is North um, Toronto in the Gore. You, know, you might give a little bit more geographical uh, description of, of your location. But if I persisted and say, seriously, where are you? You might look at me like I'm funny, like, do you not know where you are? I had to use Google to get here, so it would be in my case, um, it would be true. I, I, I don't know exactly where I am. I know, I know I'm at the Gore, but you know where you are. But you know, Christian, that there is another location. Yes, the truth is you are here in this church, in this intersection, in the Gore, and in Toronto. That's your geographical location, and all of that is correct. But there is another location, brothers and sisters, that is even more important more critical in your Christian life. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. God has brought you in union with his son. This is a mystery that we don't fully understand. I, I, I don't pretend to fully comprehend how this is so. But God in his mercy has brought us into union with Christ. Ephesians chapter one declares that so clearly. We are united to Christ. And, and Paul says that again and again and again. Our real location is in Christ. We, brothers and sisters, are citizens. It's true of Canada. But our true, deep and eternal citizenship is in heaven with the triune God. We are united to Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. Paul um, declares, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and our Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So there was a geographic location. Paul was saying, yes, you Christians are in Colossae, but you're also in Christ. So it's perfectly fair to say that we are in Toronto, and, and when I go back home, I'll be in Woodstock, but you and I are also in Christ. We are in Christ. This is tremendous. We were outside of Christ before we came to faith, before God was gracious. We were strangers and aliens, Paul tells us. But then God in his grace brought us to himself, and he did that by bringing us into Christ. We are in union with Christ. You are in union with Christ. I am in union with Christ. And this is, this is a demonstration of God's grace and his goodness. Every Christian of the invisible church can say, I am in union with Christ. So the second major point we need to consider in this sermon is our, our dual locality as children of the living God. It's true, we, have, we are made of flesh and bone. And so we have a, a position in time and space and material existence. We are in this building right here, right now, at whatever time it is. 
and then later on we'll move away to another place. But wherever we go, wherever we, whatever we do, we will always, always be in Christ. That is a sure thing. So the blessings of God can, uh, um, are, are enjoyed even now. That's why Paul can say that the blessings of heaven can be experienced even now because we are in Christ. This is a great mystery. And don't let anybody fool you into thinking that they can explain it in rational terms and exhaust all the potentiality of that, of that truth. We can speak about it in rational terms and we ought to try to understand it, but that will never exhaust the fact that you and I are in the eternal Son even now. And this brings us back to that, that introductory point. There's a lot of conflict in the world. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. But brothers and sisters, take great heart because we are in Christ. Yes, we're in Canada, and there's, there's things that are going on in Canada around the world. That doesn't change the fact. It will never change the fact that we are in Christ. And all of this is to the praise and to the glory of God the Father. When the Bible speaks of being in Christ, it is speaking of ontology. Speaking of ontology, that's just a fancy word. It means a branch of philosophy known as a study of being. Where are we? What's our being? What's our, our essence? Who are we at our most basic level? I mean, we are made of, of flesh and bone, it's true. But you're also a spirit. You have an everlasting spirit within you. The breath of God has been breathed into you. You are a living spirit. Your body may perish. Your spirit never will. It will always be with God unless you're separated from God, and then it will go to hell. But you are in Christ. And this is what Jesus Christ says. Jesus spoke of the basic ontology of each Christian when he said in John chapter 15, verse four, he said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus Christ is saying something wonderful here. He's talking about his union with himself, and he's saying, abide with me. Live with me, dwell with me. But that word abide is so much richer than simply live. It's talking about drawing sustenance from Christ, being rooted in Christ and built up in Christ. And Christ is saying to each one of us, abide in him. Abide in him. Brothers and sisters, we so often underestimate the wonderful blessings that we have in this world. You know, we sort of um, busy ourselves with the, the things of this world, the vicissitudes of this world. We just sort of go along and we bump into things and, and it's all these challenges. We can be overwhelmed by those earthly daily challenges. Jesus Christ is telling you, reminding you, urging you, abide in him. Draw your strength from him. This is not a promise that will come into fruition only in heaven. It starts here and now. If you are in union with Christ, then you have experienced some of these blessings even now. Your mind have been has been enlightened. You've gotten new affections. There were things that you liked to do, loved to do, before you were you in Christ. Now, those things are repugnant. I was just speaking to a man um, a few days ago who had some terrible sins that were, he was practicing before in his life. And now that he's born again, he said, uh, Robert, 
Those things that I used to love to do are now, they make me sick. I am physically sick every time I think of them. They're repugnant to me now. I don't want to go back to it. It's like a poisoned well. God has transformed that man. He's brought him from the kingdom of darkness and, and delivered him into the kingdom of the sun. And that man is a new creature with new affections, new desires. He no longer loves the things that he once loved. Now he loves Christ because he is abiding in Christ. And all of this is Christ's doing. And then thirdly and finally and briefly, Christ and the peace of God. Christ and the peace of God. Finally, let's consider the peace of God communicated by Christ to his people. When we began the sermon, we began by pointing out the numerous ways that we encounter disruptions and distress in our peace. There's conflicts um, outside in the world, but there's also conflicts within, within our own hearts, within our own minds. There are several wars, as I said, that are raging in different countries um, on different continents in the world, even now. You know, men are losing their lives, women too, children as well. Losing their lives in these conflicts is terrible. No one is diminishing the, uh, the catastrophe and the atrocity of these wars. But is there, is there a war in our lives, in our hearts? There ought not to be. Brothers and sisters, we should be at peace. We should have peace in our hearts. That no matter what happens out there in the world, we know in whom we, uh, we, we trust and believe, Jesus Christ. There should be a great peace in our hearts. There shouldn't, there shouldn't be turmoil in our hearts, but there often is. This is what Paul communicates to the, uh, the saints in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's God that's speaking these words through Paul. And Paul is saying, on God's behalf, Paul is saying, grace and peace to you, not from Paul, but from God. It is God himself who is communicating his peace to us. God is saying, may you have grace and peace. And Paul is the spokesman who speaks on God's behalf, but it is God who is telling us, I want you to have peace. I want you to know my grace. This is wonderful. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, beginning at verse 8, Paul writes these words about grace. These words should be cherished by each one of us because they, they contain so much mercy, God's mercy in them. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand and, which, and, and that we should walk in them. Our new life and all the blessings of this new life are a gift a gift that God, our loving Father, gave to us. Free of charge. That's what a true gift is, right? If a gift is given, but there's a charge to it, it's not a gift. It's an exchange. There's a transaction going on. You give me something, and I give you something in return. That's not the case with God's grace, new life. It only comes, it can only come as a gift, a wonderful gift, the best of gifts, the gift of new life. And Paul is, is reminding us that it comes uh, because God loves his people. He sees our brokenness. He sees our weakness. He sees that we just 
cannot get into heaven on our own, no matter how much we try. And oh, do we ever try, don't we, brothers and sisters? We try to storm the gates of heaven. We've tried in the past and we've failed. We've been miserable. We've been on that treadmill, that moral treadmill. And, and it's hard. In fact, it's impossible. And God in his mercy has given us Jesus Christ because he knows that we cannot sustain that treadmill life. He gives us the free gift of, of Jesus Christ. When a child is distressed, he or she will cause a tremendous fuss. I'm thinking of a little wee little baby. Maybe you have a wee little baby in your family or extended family. And when they first are born, they're usually not quiet. Maybe the first couple of days are sort of subdued. But after that, they, they learn very quickly that they have lungs. And they will use those lungs in, in tremendous ways. They're like huge pipe organ lungs. And they'll just wail and bellow. And they are not happy until they're fed and properly clothed and they have a bath. And then they quiet down. Isn't that true? After a baby has been fed, the baby is happy and will, and will rest content in her or his mother's arms. Well, in Psalm 131, beginning at verse 1, the word of God compares the saints to a child who has been nursed and now rests in his mother's warm embrace. That little baby, after been fed and, and is, is uh, uh, cuddled in his mother's arms, is happy. It's happy. And God is saying the Christian is like that baby or ought to be like that baby. Christians should be like little babies who have been fed and are now in the arms of Christ. And this is what the word of God says. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then the psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's a beautiful picture of the church. The church, made up of brothers and sisters in Christ, is to be like that weaned child, resting not in the world, not in the material goods of the world, not in our own strength and our own wisdom or our own ethnic background or anything like that. Our only hope our only rest is in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. He's done everything for us so that we could have eternal life with him and peace with him. God provides this striking image, the picture of the weaned baby, to tell us of his almighty power over our lives, over our minds over our emotions, and even, yes, even over our wills. He can calm us, and he can give us a quietness, a peace that passes all understanding. And he's given us everything we need to flourish in this life. He's given us a church with its organization, with Christ as its head, who governs all things. And he's given us uh, the officers of the church, to rule and, and defend us on Christ's behalf. And he's given us, he's granted us his peace so that we could rest, not in ourselves, in our own flesh, but that we could rest in him. There is a peace that passes all understanding and it comes from a deep 
and abiding fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God governs all things for the glory of his name, but also for our good as well. This great and lofty king, this great God, actually knows you, he loves you, he understands you, and he has given his beloved son that you would know him and love him and rest in him. May God grant us the grace to rest in Jesus Christ now and forever. Amen.